Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. Invite those who are able to please stand for our first lesson. It comes from 2 Peter in the first chapter, picking up in verse 3. And listen now to the Word of God. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Thus He has given us through these things His precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. For this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with mutual affection and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, and they, keep you, and they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For anyone who lacks these things is nearsighted and blind and is forgetful of the cleansing of past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to confirm your call and election, for if you do this, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us stand for our second lesson, those who are able. It comes to us from the Gospel of John in the first chapter. We begin reading at the 24th verse. John has already announced the coming of the light of the world. John announced the light. We learn that John was not the light, but bore witness to the light. And he has come uh, preparing the way of the Lord, making straight the pathway for our God. And picking up in verse 24, listen to God's word speak to your life this morning. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he is before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but the One who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain 
is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here's the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day, for it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And the story continues. Last week, Christmas came early to First Presbyterian Church, and we celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. We're now into the New Testament. And this morning, the story brings us to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry which begins with his baptism. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, is baptism. Jesus was baptized by John. Jesus called us to baptize. And so we do. You see the water here this morning, and we do have the oil. I feel like... I need to uh, get that water into that font. So if you'll indulge me just for a minute, may I go do that? Oh, they forgot to put water in it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have been sealed in the waters of baptism. You are marked as Christ's own forever. You are God's child, and with you God is very pleased. Will you pray with me, please? Oh Lord, send Your Holy Spirit now upon each heart in this place that by Your Spirit our hearts will be open to the Word that You have for us to hear. And by the illumination of our minds, we would understand that Word and live it out in the world for Your glory. Teach us, Lord Jesus, about Your promises to us in baptism that we might be Your faithful people. May the words of my mouth May the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in Your sight. You are our rock. You are our steadfast and unshakable Redeemer. We pray in Your name. Amen. So we start Jesus' public ministry with baptism. 
And I want us to think about baptism, our own baptism today. I want to start with a story. There, was a, there were three pastors who were having breakfast together. It was their custom to do so. And as they had coffee, they began to talk about their ministry, and they found very quickly that all three of them were experiencing a rather unfortunate circumstance that all three of their belfries were infested with bats. Now, not their, their own belfries, but the steeples of their churches. And they were very disgusted with the, the noise, the smell, the nuisance. And one of the pastors said, I just got so angry about this situation and I got out my shotgun and I started firing into the air to see if I could scare them off. I even peppered the steeple, scarring it a little bit, but it didn't do any good for the bats. The second pastor said, well, what I tried to do was trap them. I actually got them in a net. I drove them 50 miles from the church, and I released them, and they beat me back to the church. And the third pastor was sitting there together with a bemused look on his face, sipping his coffee, and he said, he said, well, I don't have any more problem with my bats. And the two pastors looked at him rather amazed and said, well, what did you do? He said, I simply baptized them. I hadn't seen them since. Now, that's one of those stories that if you don't laugh, it'll make you cry. Because we know it so many times to be the case, that someone would come in a, in a frenzy, in a, in a fervor of religious experience and wanting to be baptized only within weeks to disappear from the life of the church, or a family who comes to the pastor and says, Pastor, we want to do the baby. And the pastor says, well, come on, we'll wedge it in between the children's sermon and the first lesson before the baby gets fidgety. And then that couple disappears from the life of the church. It's all too often a sad reality. But this story that I've begun with, with uh, this uh, funny but sad tale, I want to juxtapose with another story. It's a story from a pastor friend of mine named Thomas Daniel. Thomas is actually a pastor in Atlanta in a new church plant called the Kairos Church. In, it's a Presbyterian church. It's ministering to young singles, young couples, and the, the unchurched, or the, uh, the de-churched. And the church is experiencing some rather remarkable success. But I heard Thomas Daniel tell this story. I actually emailed him recently to find out if the story I remember was indeed the story uh, that he told, and he confirmed it via email. He said, Chuck, I hadn't been in church in eight years. Last time I'd been in church was when I was about junior high, and I had just kind of gone with some friends that time. I'd not been to at church in, since I was in high school, hadn't been to church through college, and now I found myself in Japan after college teaching English, trying to make a little money, see the world before I had to settle down and become a responsible adult. He said, I never thought of the church as anything spiritual. So the church for me was always a place that helped people, but much in the same way that the United Way helps people or the Kiwanis or the Rotary Club helps people. But it was during my time in Japan that I was invited to attend a church. It happened to be a house church in Japan, and it was a mission that was being run by two Norwegian missionaries. I was invited by a friend of mine named Donna, who was also teaching English. Donna was from Ireland and she was being baptized on this particular Sunday. Donna not only invited me, but she invited many of our friends, many of them not churched. 
And there we were packed into this little house in Japan and had this marvelous singing and, and vibrant uh, worship service. And when it came time for the baptism, they removed pieces of the floor to reveal in the, the bowels of the house a baptismal pool. And Donna was baptized. And when she came up out of the water, there was a light around her and an expression on her face like I had never had on my face. And I asked myself the question, what would it take for me to have that expression on my face? He said, thus began my exploration of what it meant to be a Christian. A defining moment for Thomas Daniel at a baptism. A defining moment for Jesus at the beginning of his ministry at his baptism. No doubt a defining moment for John the Baptist who said to Jesus, Jesus, what do you mean, me baptize you? I'm not even worthy to touch your sandals, much less untie them. But it was an act of humility and obedience which Jesus came to John to say, you must do this to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus was baptized. And what a defining moment for Jesus as he came up out of the water to hear the voice of his father say, you are my son and with you I am well pleased. And no doubt it was a defining moment for the disciples of John the Baptist who, who saw Jesus and heard what John said about him. He is the one who will come after me, yet he was before me. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they scratched their heads and said, wait a minute. He's the Lamb of God? Okay, John, we're going to go follow Jesus now. And they did. And one of those who followed Jesus on that day was, was Andrew, the brother of Peter. And when Andrew encountered Jesus, he realized, I've got to go get i got to go get my brother. And so he went and got his brother Simon, son of John, that we know in, in the Gospels as Peter. And Jesus encountered Peter, a defining moment for Peter, and he received a new name. Baptism is at the heart of our faith. Baptism is one of our two sacraments in the Reformed tradition. A sacrament being that place where we have a visible symbol of an invisible grace. In baptism, that visible symbol of God's grace is the water. In our other sacrament, in the Lord's Supper, it is the bread and the cup, the broken body, the grace of God, the poured out blood, His precious gift to us. Baptism, the water, is not what saves us, but it's a reminder of God's saving act. In baptism, it is God who calls us. We do not choose God. It's God who chose us first. And in baptism, we are reminded that we are never alone. Just as Jesus said, all authority has been given to me at the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. He says to his disciples, the risen Lord says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, and now I am giving it to you. Go, therefore, into all nations, preaching, teaching, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
It is God who saves us, God who calls us, and God who never leaves us alone. It's not the water. The water is only a symbol. There's an old story about a, a Baptist preacher who after revival took those who were desiring baptism down to the river. And there a steely-eyed, old, weathered-looking man stepped forward and said, I desire to be baptized. And as was the custom at that point in time, the preacher said, does anybody know a reason why this man shouldn't be baptized? And after a pause, another equally weathered old man kind of stepped from the crowd and said, preacher, I think I need to tell you, you've got, you've got a hold of an old sinner right here. And one dip in that river ain't going to do him no good. I think you're going to have to anchor him in the deep water overnight. But the power's not in the water. The power's not even in how the water is used. Although on the cover of the bulletin, Frederick Bigner says that dunking is a very powerful symbol. That we go under the water, we die to an old self, and we come up out of the water resurrected with Christ to a new self. But it's not the water. the water. The water in the Chattahoochee River is just as good as the water from the Jordan River. And it's not the amount of water. It can be a few drops or it can be a whole swimming pool. Now we as Presbyterians, we sprinkle. It just seems to be a little bit more efficient and decent and in order. But you know, the provision of our directory for worship would, would entertain the request of someone desiring baptism to be immersed. And we could go down to the Chattahoochee next week and we could have a good old baptism in the river if we wanted. One's not any better than the other, we believe. It's not the form of the water, but it's the function. And the function is that visible symbol of God's grace that reminds us of our salvation in God. Some faiths teach that the power of the sacrament of baptism is in the strength of our belief, in our decision to follow Jesus Christ, but the focus of baptism is not on us as the believers. That's one of the reasons that we baptize infants in the Reformed tradition. Because it's not what the individual is doing, whether they are a, a a, a small baby or a grown adult full of, of, of conscience and, and um, accountability. It, it's not our readiness to be baptized because we are never ready. We can never earn the gift of God's grace. Thus, it's a gift. On the front of the bulletin, I quoted from Frederick Beekner who writes about baptism, and in that same little piece, he goes on to talk about infant baptism. Well, then how do you account for infant baptism versus adult baptism, and which one is better? And, and basically, Frederick Beekner says, when it comes to the transforming power of God's love and the amazing, all-encompassing beauty of God's grace in our lives, a six-week-old screecher is no different than the Archbishop of Canterbury. We'll never understand the mystery and the depth of God's grace and love. It's not about us. It's about the God who created us, redeemed us, and sustains us. So it's not the water that saves us. It's God's power to complete self-giving love in Jesus Christ that accepts 
us who, as who we are. The second thing that baptism says is that it is God who calls us, calls us to a new identity, a new walk, a new life. The word baptizo that we see in the Greek was used in the first century to talk about the act of dipping a light-colored garment into a dye. And when the fabric came out of the dye, it was a different color. And the act of changing the cloth's identity, so to speak, was called baptizo. The cloth went in one way and came out something new and different. So it is with baptism and the Greek term that we use from which we get in English our word baptism. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the historical accounts of baptism in the early church and how the candidate would study for three years to be prepared for the day of baptism. And the individual would, would come to that day and remove their old clothing and in their birthday suit would enter into the baptismal pool and after the act of being baptized would exit the pool on the other side and would then be given a new white garment to symbolize their new identity, a new creature in Jesus Christ called to a new way of life. The Apostle Peter echoes the words of the prophet, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Baptism is a sign of God's call to be new people, to be His people in the world. Some of you may be familiar with the author Sue Monk Kidd. There's actually some connection with some folks in our church in Sue Monk Kidd. I think some college roommate things going on. But anyway, Sue Monk Kidd, you may know her from her book, The Secret Life of Bees. They made a movie. And uh, her book, it's not The Secret Life of Bees, but it's entitled All Things Are Possible. She tells this story. And the headline in this story that she's quoting from a newspaper article reads, I asked Jesus into my heart. And the story follows. During the night, dogs begun to bark furiously around the home of a local couple. Usually the dogs barking signaled something amiss, there, that perhaps prowlers lurked nearby. But the next morning, the couple discovered that nothing had been taken. Actually, something had been returned. Outside the front door were two car speakers that had been stolen six weeks earlier. A note attached to them read like this, I'm sorry I took your speakers, but now I've repented of my sins. I ask Jesus to forgive me. I hope you will forgive me too. I no longer take other people's belongings. God has changed me. I'm a new creature now that I have asked Jesus Christ into my heart. And the note was signed, saved. I think the individual could have very well signed it, baptized which means that we have put on a new life in Christ. It means not only that we've been rescued from, a, from an old self, from sinful behaviors, but that we now walk in the footsteps of the one who gave us new life. I heard someone say yesterday that never is a Christian more alive when they are living out of the image of God within them. Never are we more alive as followers of Jesus Christ than when we are walking in His footsteps, speaking His words, and living His life. 
So how is it with this being said about baptism that an individual can come for baptism or a family with their child and then disappear from the life of the church? The Wall Street Journal several years ago carried an article about the dramatic increase in fundamentalism in Islam in Turkey, a country that's been traditionally a melting pot of all faiths. And, and the article quoted this young Muslim Turk. And he said, our view of religion is very different from yours, he told this Western reporter. According to your rules, he continued, religion counts only in a place where you pray. Our religion is a way of life. I have no time at all not one minute in my life without Islam. Now maybe his view of Christianity was a bit jaded and judgmental, but I wonder, is that how the world views Christians? How the world views the Christian faith? One whose rules apply to its followers only while they're in a church. Or do those who look at us see and hear in our living claim to paraphrase this young Turk, I have no time in my life, no, not one moment without Jesus Christ. Could that be said of us? The world is looking at Christianity and so are our own, our young ones. It is being said now that in these changing times in the life of this postmodern, post-Christian world, that the most uh, growing piece of the Christian faith is the rise of the nuns. Now that's N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. And the nuns are those who, when they are asked about their, their faith affiliation, will claim Christianity. But when they are asked about their church affiliation, they reply, none. Now, somebody who's done a, a great deal of important and cutting-edge work in this area is Kenda Creasy-Ding. Now, let me just digress here for just a moment and tell you that Nathan Sauter, who's going to be ordained on April 6th as our associate pastor uh, for family discipleship, studying under Kenda Creasy Dean at Princeton Seminary. And on his resume or his, or his PIF, he had her listed as a reference, but she refused to give us, a, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so we called Kenda Creasy Dean about this guy named Nathan Sauter. I said, tell us about him. I mean, what, what's going on? And she said, two thumbs up. And I think we would all agree. So Nathan knows full well, and probably better than I, what I'm talking about this morning when I mention her work. She's written a book called Almost Christian. The subtitle is, What the Faith of Our Teenagers is Telling the American Church. And what research and what thinkers and writers are telling us about the, the 18 to 30-year-olds in our society is that, that they claim to be nominally Christian Yet a third of these 18 to 30-year-olds also say that they are religiously unaffiliated. That 70% of these 18 to 30-year-olds are ones who grew up in our churches and in our homes. Now listen, they are our children. They attended our youth groups. They heard Bible stories at bedtime and they said grace at dinner. They started out in our church and then they vanished. 
And then Kenda Creasy-Dean in this recent article asked this question, what might have prevented such a fate? She goes on, addressing nominal Christianity starts with the church. According to the National Study of Youth and Religion, several factors during adolescence prepare nominally Christian teenagers to remain faithful as young adults. These assets include, listen, having a highly committed personal faith as a teenager, having multiple adults in their lives, not just the youth director, the associate pastor, or the parents, but multiple adults in their lives to whom they can go and receive support and encouragement. Three, a discipline of reading and praying frequently. Four, religiously devoted parents. And five, an identifying religious experience, a transforming spiritual experience. If all of these happen before young adulthood, there's a good chance that they will not vanish as they have in such alarming numbers in these decades just past. Drew Dyson, a United Methodist pastor in his dissertation work, found that congregations that emphasize meaning, belonging, and radical hospitality help young adults who have experienced faith drift reimagine themselves as participants in God's mission and community. And I believe that that is exactly what we are doing and moving more toward as a body of believers. And I am so thankful to God for that and thankful that we have called Nathan and Joy. But let me say here that what I believe we need to understand is that baptism and meeting Jesus are not necessarily the same thing. That doesn't mean that they're mutually exclusive. They can happen at the same time. But baptism and meeting the risen Lord are not the same thing. There are defining moments in the followers of Jesus Christ. There are defining moments in our lives. Even when we have been marinated in the church, and we don't know a time when we weren't in the church, there comes a time that we know that we know that we know that our Savior our creating God gave us life and redeems our life and sustains our life. Baptism reminds us of the promises that have been made to us by our loving God. Baptism reminds us that we are saved by God, that we are called by God, and that we are never alone. Martin Luther, the great reformer, in his times of challenge and doubt and difficulty, would say out loud, baptiza too soon, baptiza too soon, baptiza too soon. I have been baptized, I have been baptized, I have been baptized. And he would say it to himself. He would say it as a prayer. He would speak it and rebuke it in the face of the one who tempted and tormented him. I have been baptized, remembering that God had claimed him as his own and he was never alone. Powerful words for us as individuals and as a family of faith. I'll close with this story. It's the story of a pastor friend who 
told about that phone call that comes late in the night that every pastor dreads to some degree. And it was from distraught parents who called the pastor to say, our daughter, our 15-year-old daughter has been missing for several days and we had no idea where she was. We were too embarrassed to tell anyone that she had run away. But she has called us tonight. She's in a town on the West Coast. She is alone. She is scared. She is afraid. Please pray for her until we can get to her. And the pastor said, I will pray. He prayed with them on the phone, and as he hung up, he remembered that child that he had baptized himself 15 years ago. And as he remembered that child, he remembered the baptism and the elder that stood with that child on that day. And as the providence of God would have it orchestrated, the pastor then remembered it was that very elder who was living in that town where that young girl had come to her senses. And the pastor called that elder and said, Ed, do you remember her? He said, yes, I do. He said, do you remember your promise to her? He said, yes, I do. He said, tonight she needs you. Will you go to her? He said, yes, I will. And he went to her and gathered her up and said, you are God's child. And with you, God is very pleased. And you are not alone. And he held her safe until her parents could come and bring her back home. The promise of baptism is to each one of us, and the promise of baptism is to us as a family of believers to live out these truths, that it is God who saves us. It is God who calls us to a new way of life. And we are never alone by the grace of God. These are the truths of our baptism. These are the truths that define all of our moments. And may it be true for us today and in all the days to come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.